everybody. Welcome to today's episode of The Suspense is Killing Me. I am joined by the one and only Coy Hall. What's going on, Coy? Glad to be here, Lucas. Thanks for having me. All the way from West Virginia. West Virginia to Virginia, yes. <laughs> yes, it is, it, and as we were talking before the show, you're the second West Virginian on the show, even though Brian Bowyer can't, he's not in West Virginia anymore. He's in Ohio, so we'll give him, we'll give him a pass. You can never leave. <laughs> always a part of you. Yeah. That's right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I really appreciate you coming on the show. You've got a very busy week at the time of this publication. You are literally in the fire. You are releasing a book. Um, and we'll talk a bit about that. We also want to talk a little bit about your back catalog and um, a little bit about what got you here. Uh, you're a historian. Freaking awesome. First historian on the show, by the way. Um, Probably you and I have, not. yeah, for the moment, <laughs> you and I have nerded out a bit about, uh, some international conflict, uh, <laughs> all previous, not current. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm really excited to, to talk in particular about the, the applications of your, your fiction, because it's different than a lot of what I've had on the show in the past. I mean, we've had all kinds of stuff. We've had grief horror, folk horror, we've had, more extreme stuff. We've had all the good stuff, collections, anthologies, novels, novellas, all the things. And yours will be one of the first times we've actually covered like historical fiction and its relevance to some of the more generally uh, uh, read um, horror fiction, thriller, suspense, all the kinds of stuff. And where better to pull those influences from than but, but the past, you know? Nothing is bad. I mean, there's nothing scarier than the real things that have occurred, and there's nothing worse than things that real humans have done. So you really can't, um, if you draw from that, um, yeah, you can't surpass it. And so yeah. that's a, that's something that has always drawn me to 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 writing historical fiction and horror and historical settings. Like that's it's all already there, you know, to talk about. Right. Now we're not talking about retro writing, like, like putting stuff in the eighties guys. We're talking about <laughs> right. going back, going back. Right. Um, what, what, so, so just to kind of open that door a little bit about the historical applications, um, what, like, so when did you become a historian? When did this happen? When did you make up your mind to become a historian? I've, you know, I always wanted to do both. Uh, when I was a teenager, I wanted to write and I wanted to be a historian. I didn't necessarily want to write uh, nonfiction. I didn't want to write histories. I was always interested in writing fiction, but I also wanted to be a historian. So I remember when I was going through school that, you know, professors would say, well, you can't do both. You got to pick. But I don't think that's true. Um, you, you don't have to do that. And so really, I knew what I wanted to do from you know, age 16 that I wanted to write. I began writing then. I began studying history then. And I just uh, worked, worked my way through and kind of kept both of those. It, it didn't, what's interesting, I think, is that it didn't dawn on me to combine the two mm. at first. I tried to write contemporary fiction. So I was trying to, you know, but when I got to think it, you can't, I couldn't compete with Stephen King and I can't compete with these people who are just, you know, uber popular who are writing contemporary fiction. So I thought the one thing you can do is write, is set your, the same type of stories that you're writing, but set them in eras that people don't often write about. People write a lot about the Second World War and they write a, a lot about the American Civil War, but they don't write a lot about like the 17th century the 30 years war i was thinking you know a lot about those things so why don't you just set your story is and and those errors and that's really when i kind of found my uh found my path excellent and i mean a lot of authors that like to to write books particularly in the horror genre and even some thrillers they like to lean more into like the gothic kind mm -hmm. of elements uh of those time periods did you find yourself interested in becoming or writing more in the gothic space or what what kept you from from maybe identifying as a gothic writer well i do kind of think of myself as writing uh with with kind of some gothic trappings especially the decaying castles and you know and the the, the look of gothic fiction i use i also use folk horror a lot um drawing from folk traditions and things like that 
Um, so maybe the maybe the lack of romance in my my novels probably maybe keeps it from the gothic genre from being firmly in a, in a in the gothic tradition because I do think that's an important part of of gothic writing. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, I, I think some people at a very high level would say, you know, gothic haunted by something from the past or influenced by something from the past. Lots of emotion, dark. Yeah preferably back in those time periods, you know, if you really right. want to get, get down into the craziness of it, but, um, but not true, right? Like there has to be a romantic element or maybe I, not true, but like, I think so. I, I think it's an important element to it. I mean, it's, it's, if you're talking about, you know, pure Gothic fiction and you read, I mean, the 18th century Gothic authors, that's, that is an important element to those, mm -hmm. to those stories. Right. And uh, but I but I do think in, in terms of like the aesthetic and just the, the feel and the buildings and the, the emphasis on decay, that's always something that's important to me in my, my writing mm -hmm. is um, emphasizing the decay of, of people and their time and their place. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I do feel like that has a kind of a gothic. Um, it's a gothic vein run, running, running through that. Wow. So what what do you think it is about that theme that kind of resonates with you that keeps coming back? Well, you know, I, when I look back at the with these time periods, and um, I read these stories stories of these people, and I think about kind of comparing it to to modern times, I you know, would when you see like when you're going through you know, public school and you're learning about history, they always learn about the high points. People are always achieving. Everything's always progressing. Mm. But we're, when you really get into like more nuanced history, you see there are places that come and go and people, these towns decay, right? They'll rise and then they'll fall just like people. And that's always been an interesting element to me that these regions, these parts of Europe that, you know, are prosperous for a while and then they begin to decay and they're kind of outside of the mainstream. It's not Vienna that you're talking about in Austria. It's the, you know, the Styrian highlands, you know, where, where it's, you're, they're, they're suffering kind of economic depression and things like that. That level of decay and the old buildings that are left behind. It's always been a fascinating thing to me. There's old military fortresses that oh, were yeah. there to like protect against the Ottomans, you know, the Ottoman, the, the, the Turks and um, the fact that those have been left behind and they're just decaying and they're part of the landscape. Um, that that's always attracted me just that, that visual rather than say, you know, the, um, Paris or London in that time, these prosperous mm. areas, these kind of outside the mainstream. And that, that element of decay is really always in my stories. Um, you, you kind of, I, I like to ground it by starting it in a known area, but then moving it into you know, one of these more kind of decaying backward places, you know, in the seven, in 17th century, Austria, a place, something like that. God, it just sounds cool, man. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, is there, I mean, obviously we could draw some pretty clear comparisons to our own lives, right? In that and say, um, yeah. you know, we're in a constant state of decay. It's funny because when I was an engineer, we studied corrosion quite a bit. Um, it's a very costly problem for us. And we used to, we used to tell the guys, Hey, look, you're fighting nature. This is simply refined metal trying to go back to its natural state. Like you can't right. prevent nature from doing what it does, but you can, you can, re you can slow it. Right. Um, do you feel like we kind of just have that built into our nature that no matter how much progress we make, we're constantly fighting our own decay? Yeah. Well, it's the idea of like things fall apart. If yeah. you have that as a worldview, you know, things fall apart and, um, maybe even more interesting than that is that when you're in the middle of things falling apart, you're always in denial about it too. You tell yourself like the lie of progress and we're going to make it out of this. And so I think, you know, characters in those areas are, can be very familiar to our time. Yes, they existed 400 years ago, but they're experiencing the same type of denial that we experience now more in the middle of, you know, a decaying area. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty deep stuff. Dude, I don't think I've ever gotten this deep in the first 10 minutes of a show. <laughs> I try. I try. Just wait. Wait till minute 40. Yeah. Koi brought the darkness. Right. That's awesome, yeah. man. We're not going to leave with any hope. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. There, there shall be no hope. Um, 
So real quick, for those that may be unfamiliar with your catalog, I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about what you've done. Um, not all of what you've done, because you've done a lot. Um, if you guys go to KoiHall.com, you'll see what I'm talking about. Koi's got all of his novels and collections listed on his website. And there's a, a lot of short story work that you've done as well. Um, but we, we're we're pretty much looking at six main titles on your site here. Um, a couple of collections and a couple of novels. And I love, uh, I love that you are, you pull, even though you have a lot of the same themes, uh, resonating, they are not the same stories. Like you have very different, uh, times, uh, locations, all the things, I mean, very different. I'm looking at, uh, you know, the hangman feeds the jackal is, is, is nothing like the promise of plague wolves. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, so can you, can you talk a little bit about, uh, the promise of plague wolves? Like what, what, what inspired you to write that story? What are we looking at here? What is this? So, uh, yeah, I would really like to talk about that because that, that's, I think that book more than any other up to this point represents my style and my, just my, my, um, kind of vision for, you know, horror stories and, 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 and how to go about them. But so this story is set in 1686 in Austria, and at at that time, the um, in in this story, there is a smallpox. Um, it's it's I mean, smallpox was like a plague still at that point, and when smallpox sure. would be unleashed on a community, it was it was devastating. And so it's at a time when Styria, which is a, a part of Austria, Styria is being blocked off and quarantined for a smallpox outbreak and so the military you know kind of keeping travelers from going not going in not going out and the the main character is named doran toth and um doran toth is a is as a character that i had built up in a couple of short stories but he is a paranormal investigator for lack of a better term he's an occult detective um, but the 17th century version of an occult detective. So think about like 1686, to put that in context, like the Salem witch trials are 1692. So if you think about that era, right, that's when he lives and it's how he looks. Um, and the, but he's from Hungary and he is um, a part of a, an order within the Catholic church called the, um, the order of St. Gwynfort. And, Saint Gwynfort is a real saint from the 13th century in France who is a gray okay. a greyhound a dog like he's a dog saint. And, Hold on a second, he's a he's an, a saint that's a dog? Right, he is. Really? He, he's a yeah, he's a folk saint, right? So he's not like so the church kind of embarrassed of him, but on a local level, okay. He is revered as a saint and uh, as ha- has healing powers. And people will take their sick kids to St. Gwynfort. St. Gwynfort has this great backstory in France. And he was um, a dog who was accidentally, accidentally killed, but he was actually protecting a baby. But the owner thought that he was trying to hurt the baby. So he killed the dog Wow! and felt remorseful and put a nice burial in, this, in the forest. And so he, his, he became a saint and people would take their sick kids and leave it on the grave of uh, St. Gwynfort, the child overnight. Not a good idea. (laughs) Go live your kid in the forest, but nevertheless, there you have it. You go there the next day and the kid's not there. That did happen. Um, And that's crazy. But other times they'd go and say that the kid was healed, but but that's all backstory. So St. Order of St. Gwynfort, the tie in here is that the investigators all have a greyhound with them. Hmm. So the, all the occult, occult investigators in the order have a greyhound with them, tracing them back to the this same Saint Gwynfort. And so, Dorantoth's dog is named Vinegar Tom, right? Vinegar Tom, and he's um, a greyhound, and he accompanies Toth on all his investigations. So in the short stories, all the future novels I want to write, it's Toth and his dog, right, going around and um, confronting my dog in the background there is barking right now. <laughs> he is he is supporting your your decision to include a dog in the story but Which, so 
So the, the story, though, is about Toth and Vinegar Tom. They're sent into Styria in 1686, and they investigate not only what's going on there, but there's this occult plague that's going on behind smallpox, and they unravel the mystery, and that's what The Promise of Plague Wolves is about. Nice. You have beautiful titles, by the way. I love I love Thank your titles. You. Thank you. Um, okay, I got to ask, what made you decide to name the dog Vinegar? All right, so I I have to kind of give up give up my secret on that. On <laughs> am I allowed to ask? Yeah, <laughs> okay. because he um, this is from my real witchcraft case in real uh-huh. life. In real life, right? Um, do you know who, you've heard of Matthew Hopkins? He was hmm. in the English Civil War. He was the Witchfinder General. All right, there's a Vincent Price horror movie in the 60s called Witchfinder General about Matthew Hopkins. Nice. He's a, but he's a real figure. He was self-appointed. No government's going to call you the Witchfinder General, by the way. you got to call yourself that. <laughs> right? <laughs> Obviously. Wait, so what, are you going to, are you going to be at StokerCon 24? <laughs> maybe? No. Maybe not? No, okay. No, no if you were, I was going to say, you need to put that on your name tag so that when I see you. <laughs> <laughs> Witchfinder General, yeah. <laughs> but... He um, was a horrible human being. He was absolutely horrible human being. And he would, he was an investigator of witchcraft and he would kind of, lack of a better term, torture people. And he would kind of get this information out of them. And one of the cases, he had this old woman who talked to animals. And that's what she did. She really did. She just seemed like a nice old lady who was feeding wildlife, by the way, when you look back at the case. But she had all these animals and he called them her familiars, right? They were like the go-betweens between Satan and and this old woman. Mm. And she named them and she named them. One was Vinegar Tom <laughs> and one was Greedy Gut. And I always liked those names. And I thought, I got to use Vinegar Tom and awesome. greedy gut and so both of those our names are used in the book there's another dog in the in the book um a great pyrenees named greedy gut so um that's also from the matthew hopkins trial nice. and, and those are real from the real court records and the hopkins cases so see guys you, you never know what you're gonna find here <laughs> that is so cool it's bizarre bizarre but it's just like um couldn't resist yeah couldn't no re- i mean how could you that's amazing uh, I love that. Um, and, and so you you just released that. Let me look here. That was released in September, right? September twelfth. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Does, yeah. So that's that's got some legs on it by uh, you know by now, and 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 I'm sure you're getting a lot of feedback from from readers about the story. Um, that's really cool. What a fun time! That first two months after the release is pretty exciting. It is. Yeah. And it's a nervous time too. You know, you put yeah. you kind of put so much so much into these books and you don't know how people are going to receive them. And sure. Well, I did this book with nose touch press and they, um, you get the back and forth between you and the editor and, and that, but it's really just two people. It's still just two people, you know, doing yep. that when you really put it out. And this book went on net galley as well too, which was always a nervous situation because net galleys, wide open and it's not your friends reviewing the book you know these right. people. and so that so but it was it's been very positive on that galley and um everything since it's been very i'm relieved to say <laughs> that's, and, yeah that's a good thing right it's on the it's on the brom stoker awards reading list too it's made so for, i noticed for, that yesterday yeah so i was looking over the email and i was like well look at that Got a celebrity on the show, right? Yeah, <laughs> you're not not allowed to say what's on the reading list. I think by like HWA rules, technically, so don't don't tell anybody. Don't yeah. tell anyone yet. <laughs> uh, I can say what I read on the list, right? Um, <laughs> okay, so a Pantheon of of thieves is a collection, right? No. So that's you know, obviously a little different than than um, than a plague with a Pantheon of thieves. Is this a collection of stories you've been building over the years? It was. Um, it dates back. I think the earliest story in that collection was written in 2012. Okay. Dates back that far. But what it was, was um, I had wanted to to, to do a, a World War One anthology. Hmm. And I was going to start, I was going to start a small press and I did that. It's called the Scythian Wolf. 
And to, to fund that, I self-published through the Scythian Wolf, the, a pantheon of thieves and other weird tales. And so that, that was what that project was. I self-published that and it generated the money to do the, uh, the World War One anthology. But yeah, I went back to 2012, just pulled together some stories that kind of fit into the weird horror genre and um, just a mix of everything in there. They, they're stories that go back into the, the 30 years war in the, the 1640s um, they go back that far. There's a medieval horror story it goes back to the black death. Um, but it also goes all the way up to the 1980s. There's a story in 1982 and, a, and there's a science fiction story that takes place in the future. And um, so it's just a mix, a little, it's a good sampler. Uh, if you want to kind of get a sense of my writing style, the Pantheon of Thieves is a good, good place to start because there's, there's a little bit of everything in there. Well, I just cracked it. Uh, I want to say Sunday. I just, uh, yeah. I just, I just got it off of uh, onto my Kindle and and uh, and oh, and just you. cracked into it on Sunday. So I'm really looking forward to. Uh, oh, to um, I love I love collections, especially when you get to kind of. It's probably just from my upbringing, being a huge King fan in the '80s. You know, I think probably one of the first things I read by him was Four Past Midnight. Right. Yeah. And Night Shift. Um, I mean. I just love the collections because uh, it's, you know, so many cool, interesting, fun little stories. And there feels like there's a, a bit of freedom in a short story like that. You can, you can fly a little faster and a little bit further in a short period of time and the reader expects it. And, and if you, you know, if you're not careful in a novel, you can, you can break some trust rules there. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I, I do have the first story in there too. It's called the night of the rat's nest. And it is something of a teaser for the world war one horror anthology which i'll be releasing next year it is a uh story that's um set during and directly after the first world war so uh, that's kind of a teaser for that too well that's that's death's other kingdom right right yeah okay. this this um a pantheon of thieves the first story in it is a world war one set story gotcha Okay. And so it's a teaser for this this anthology I'm doing next year. Right. And and the yeah. anthology is Death's Other Kingdom. Right? Death's Other Kingdom. Okay. And that that anthology is a uh, Scythian Wolf uh, published anthology, right? Right. Yeah. And you do have an open, I mean, you had an open window until November 1st. Right. We did um, August the 1st to November 1st and received over 150 short stories for that so now the work really begins with trying to pick what to include in the book and and what to what to exclude so oh that's a lot of reading uh to do now what wh what are we what are we looking at for death's other kingdom as far as word count per story that kind of yeah it's so i wanted a kind of mix of long and short but i set up four thousand to nine thousand words so i wanted substantial stories not like short shorts but actual some i wanted world building going on right. in, in 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 the stories so the the final book's going to be around fifty thousand words around 200 pages and i i personally when i'm reading anthologies like that length because I feel like anthologies can wear out their welcome sometimes if they're yeah. 300, 400 pages and it's the same theme that you're yeah. reading, it can get tiring. So I, I wanted to kind of keep it at eight stories around 200 pages. And that way you don't wear out your welcome. That was very nice. My approach to it. Very nice. And that, uh, that'll be out in May, hopefully of 2024. It's called death's other kingdom. Excellent. So put that on your list of uh, things to things to invest in guys um, in early 24. I mean, if you if you if you're publishing that in May, are you going to do a pre-order on that, or is that too soon for me to ask that? Oh yeah, I'll do a pre-order. Okay. Yeah, I'll do a pre-order. Definitely a pre-order for the ebook. Um, I'm not certain if I'll do a pre-order for the paperback or not. Yeah, but. Gotcha. I heard you're going to do a special edition hardcover where it's just like images of Koi dressed in. <laughs> right. <laughs> historically yeah. rel relevant. Uh, Oh, my, my, my uniform collection. I'm going to show it off. That's right. See, I told, I told you that in confidence. Before the show. It's good. Can't believe you betrayed me. Yeah. I can't believe I said that. <laughs> Dude, that's so cool. I, I'm really excited about that one. Not just because world war one is such a uniquely 
gosh, I mean, you talk, I mean, we, we, yeah. we, we talked a little bit about like how, how much things advanced from, you know, warfare and weaponry and all the things from the late 1800s up through the first half of the, of, of the 20th century. But like, when you look at, you look at world war one, it was kind of this middle ground where things were just yeah. wild, wild west with warfare. I mean, we were like on the precipice of really having, technologically advanced weaponry, but we were also very rudimentary and things were just brutal. I mean, it was like brutal applications of weaponry. It's crazy. Yeah. And I I like to think of it as having essentially as one foot in the 19th century and one foot in the 20th century and straddles these times. And so you do get this mix of old and new. And I think that push and pull between old and new there's a lot of drama in that. And that's, that's one thing I want to, that's why I wanted to do this era and and these stories because you do have airplanes, but you still have extensive use of balloons as well, you know, um, and you have radio, but you also still have carrier pigeons. Um, Horses were used extensively during the war. You know, I see it really in some ways looks like an old 19th century war, but it's, very modern in other ways. And I, I just, I love that drama of, of, of the first world war something that really draws me to it. I find it more, much more interesting than the second world war. Mm. Um, I find the first world war much more, much more interesting to, to read about. Yeah. It's been, it's, it's, it hasn't gotten as much exposure as world war two for sure. So yeah, well, I, fresh. Right. And I, and I think that, um, I've loved reading these stories. These stories that have been submitted have been so good too. And that's something that's like made me really happy when I put out this open call. You know what? You're you're never certain what you're going to get. And I've had received some really excellent stories and some unique stories and unique areas, not just about trenches in France, but about you know um, colonial Africa and and things like that, that, that stuff that was going on during the war. And it's just been, it's been really fun reading through these stories. Wow. Um, what a, what a, what a crazy time. I can't wait to see that collection because yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll refrain from my little nerd excitement because I was, yeah, we spoke before I was active duty. So I went to the war college and we studied all the different time periods of war, but that whole, late 1800s, early 1900s time period. It was just, if, if you, if you haven't quite gotten into reading, uh, reading about that time period, this will be a great intro to that for people because I don't think they understand how much it shapes the world we live in now and, and how the, how everything changed for World War yeah. II. Like, you wouldn't have World War II without that. Yeah. And I think, and, and I want to emphasize this too. And when I, when I, reading these stories and the people writing these stories i'm not contributing a story to it these are i'm just editing it but the um the stories are are very artful about using the war as backdrop but they're still horror stories they're not historical treatises right they're horror stories but with all these trappings and the texture of the war you know and and the time period and i think that's it's like when you get historical horror like that and there's one thing that really draws me to it is it's almost like fantasy in the level of world building that's right um, so because it's an unfamiliar time and it's an unfamiliar place you're going and it's like fantasy or science fiction. There's this mm-hmm. world building element involved um, that you can't get away with assuming somebody knows what, right. You know, a, a phone, a telephone looks like in, in 1917, you know, <laughs> you need to describe. And I love, I love that element of describing it and the kind of bringing that alive in your mind. So it's always Awesome. I've always loved that. Well, not, not to, I could, I could talk about Death's Other Kingdom all day, by the way, because I would just, y- you've got me excited. I want to open a small press and, and read short stories about World War One now. <laughs> <laughs> just do it. All day. Somebody said, I asked, I asked somebody if I should do that. And he said, it's a terrible idea. And I said, I'm going to do it then. Great. I'll okay, get started. <laughs> um, but I, I, I want to make sure we give some, some time to a seance for wicked king death which right. first question is please koi tell me when this book is coming out <laughs> <laughs> so this one's coming out on no- november 10th and the um it's coming out from shotgun honey 
and Shotgun Honey as um, pretty unique following they've uh, for crime fiction. So, so I was really excited to to do a book with Ron Earl Phillips. He runs uh, Shotgun Honey and. He also designed the cover for it. And I was in love with the cover of it. It has this like noir feeling of like 1940s movie poster. But the story is set in 1956 Mm -hmm. and it's set between Cincinnati, Ohio and Huntington, West Virginia. Right. So a lot of it takes place in 1956 in Huntington, West Virginia and a small town. And so it goes from Cincinnati to Huntington. And it's set in the world of fraudulent seances and occultism. There's nothing supernatural about it. It's a crime novel. It's a noir novel. But it's uh, set in that world where the main character, Royce and Anna, they are, quote unquote, mediums, right? <laughs> they're mediums who, who talk to the dead, but they're fake and they, 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 they prey on people. And it it's, takes place in that world in the 50s. What drew you to write about that time period? I mean, this is obviously still in our in our current. It's in our past, right? But it's yeah. it's very different from from the time periods that you you live um, in uh, yeah. at work. <laughs> it's pr- practically modern, you know. <laughs> compared, yeah, compared yeah. to like yesterday. But yes. um, I think well, what drew me to it is because what I like to read. So um, I love to. So my favorite authors, you know, like Raymond Chandler. And um, uh, David Goodis is one of my favorite crime authors. And he wrote, he wrote Shoot the Piano Player. And um, he writes about 1950s Philadelphia, you know, these, these noir novels in the 40s and 50s. And so that is what drew me to write. I wanted to write a novel about that time period because I, I liked it from those books, you know, and, and the language of those books. And I just wanted to... I started, I wrote the book back in 2020 when COVID lockdown began. And I said, well, I don't know how long this is going to last. So I'm going to write a novel while we're in lockdown. And I, oh, and, I be, and I began it in April and finished it in, in May of that year. And um, finally, finally seeing it, finally coming out now. So Nice. Yeah. Oh, this is great. Um, I've... I'm so curious about when I heard the title, I hadn't seen the cover yet. Right. So, right. um, and then immediately I recognized the cover from, from your Twitter posts and it's almost like the title and the cover didn't go hand in hand with me when I, when my brain was thinking. <laughs> and I think, I think that is a testament to how cool this title is. I'm like, you know, when you hear it as a standalone, you almost think like I, it's hard to put your finger on what the story is actually going to be about. Right. But then once you get the, the, the book description in your, in your head, um, you're like, oh, this sounds cool. Like where did, you... okay. So first of all, seances and Kings like that, that like pulled me in, in <laughs> totally different directions. Where, where did the whole like what made you want to bring seances into into this world like it's 1956 you could have picked right all kinds of things from that time period that are probably more commercially relevant yeah um but you you pull a seance into this into the 50s well what's it what's the interesting about that time is there's if you look back mm-hmm. in u.s history anytime we have a major war after after the war there's a peak in interest in occultism because all the massive loss from the war and it's mm. actually a sad thing, right? That yeah. people want to contact loved ones. And so um, there's that, this is, this is interesting. Back in the twenties, it was that way after the first world war, Thomas Edison was working on like a spirit telephone in the twenties to talk to the dead, Thomas Edison of all people. That's hot. And in the late forties, it, peaked again and there was this interest in occultism and seances were in vogue seances were in vogue into the 1960s um occultism was and um so that's something i had uh, i had been interested in reading about spiritualism and not like spiritualism with a lowercase s but the uppercase s like the religion from the 19th century where they talk to the dead the fox sisters and stuff where they do the table wrappings and all the seances and um, 
I thought it, it's uh, after after World War II, and um, Royce, the main character, is his history in the book goes back to you know the late 40s and stuff. So that era kind of builds up to the 50s. But that's what that's why, and that's why seances in the 50s. So that's where that's where the, where that comes from. And the Wicked King death of the title, I had uh, I had always wanted to write a, a juvenile delinquent 1950s novel, <laughs> like a crime novel in the 50s <laughs> called King Death. I had this big idea. I was going to write this novel called King Death. And so I just stole that title from my other project. And I thought, well, that, that's kind of cool, you know. And so that's I made awesome. a I made up this legend. They have this Royce in the novel tells this vaudeville story, um, which is supposed to be a funny story about a seance for wicked king death so it's it's in the night and he tells them he tells the story in the novel but. awesome and it's a vaudeville routine from the 20s that he's talking about when he when he but it's all made up if you're curious <laughs> yeah I, I had to i had to link it into the title i'm like i'm gonna make let me make up a quick legend here you know <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's gonna know, you know. Nobody's gonna know. Yeah. And I was recently interviewing Rose Biggin, who wrote a book, uh, uh, the Belladonna Invitation, and it's set in. Uh, let me, Rose, don't kill me if I get the dates wrong here. It's in the 1800s, 1890s, I think. Um, Parisian uh, society, high society, kind of super gothic, super like just saturated. Right. With gothic angst and all the good things, darkness everywhere. Um, I don't, I don't know that I actually saw the sunshine in that book in my head at all the whole time I was reading it. But um, in that book, she has these things called poison salons. And if if you guys have listened to the episode with Rose, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, this is going to be a good uh, promotion for that episode. But she had these these people with money and exclusive access to the higher forms of society in Paris in that time frame in her story could access this poison salon where people could basically play Russian roulette a little bit, kiss death. And um, I was like, where did you get that idea from? Like, she's like, just made it up. (laughs) Sounds like a real thing. I was like, so I'm sure you're, uh, I'm sure you're, your vaudeville act is going to come across perfectly. Well, I mean, if you just people give you the benefit of the doubt, yeah. if you if you if you, if I just I'm going to present this like it's a real thing and he's telling a real story, <laughs> they just assume you're. Yeah. Why not? Why would you? I want to believe it's true. Why? Why would you do that to me? <laughs> why would you lie to me? You're not going to lie to me. It's got to be true. Now I'm going to spend the rest of my life believing this legend. Yeah, don't look up the seance for Wicked King Death vaudeville routine of the 20. It's not there. <laughs> it's all, all all made up and uh it's a it's a story he tells in the, in the book though. But it's a, it's a what it what a it's a, it's a, a noir story and then where it's a guy who is kind of drawn into trouble. He's drawn into the situation. He's drawn back into his past. He's trying to get away from it. It pulls him back in and he's being set up um to take the fall you know for for something big and so the the central story is royce pembroke the main character getting drawn into that world and having to get out of out of trouble he's gonna try he's gonna try yeah um i'm i'm looking at some praise for the book on amazon right now which people if i'm looking at it on amazon that means you you should be there buying it um let's see here uh cw blackwell this is the one i wanted to share Koi Hall is a master of creating thrilling historic, historical fiction novels. This is no exception, paraphrasing. With a unique premise and a cast of characters full of moxie, nice word selection there, relevant <laughs> right. to the book, and humorous, intelligent dialogue, Hall delivers a pulse-pounding noir novel reminiscent of Williford or Goodis. Um, I like that uh, he calls you a dream come true for pulp aficionados. So <laughs> right, yeah. if anyone listening is a pulp aficionado, here is your dream come true. <laughs> and yeah, and I am a obsess an obsessor over pulp fiction from the 30s and 40s and 50s. Not the Tarantino movie. Not it's the fine. movie from the 90s. That, that's fine. <laughs> it's, the movie's good. But I mean, the actual pulp fiction from the 30s, thir- I just love it. Love it. Have you, um, okay, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to ask you that question on air and then get us both killed. I will ask you a question later. <laughs> okay, yeah. 
it's about that time period and some writing I just I'm absolutely a huge fan of. Okay. Um, okay. So if you um, if if you're now dabbling in the 50s mm-hmm. uh, and you are obviously dabbling in the 50s in a very familiar area of the country for you. Um, but a very different place than most people read about in the fifties. I mean, usually when you hear or see things about the fifties, it's either really deep South stuff or right. it's like set in New York city or LA or somewhere right. very popular. When you, when you write about th- this region of the country, uh, yeah. and if I ever interviewed, uh, uh, David Ray Pollock, I'm gonna ask him the same question. Cause he's got some really cool application, like in his books, you don't, or Donald Ray Pollock. Sorry, I said David. Donald Ray Pollock, when he writes about Southern Ohio, Kentucky, kind of like there is no mistaking the influence of that area on his stories. Did you feel like when you wrote about this stretch between Cincinnati and, and West Virginia, right? Is that correct? Right. Did you did you feel like th- that area had a tremendous amount of influence on the story, or did it just happen to be a good place for this to happen? It has a tremendous amount of influence on the characters in the story mm. uh royce the main character comes from old money and he is um a bit aloof i guess he's not he's he's he, 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 not a cincinnati person <laughs> nor a, a west virginia person so he it's kind of his how he's seeing this world mm-hmm. and so the characters who surround him yeah absolutely they're they're influenced by real life all the places in the novel are real places the Greyhound station even is the Greyhound station in Huntington today. You know, it's art deco building. It's still there today. And it's described, you know, um, as, as it exists. So yeah, I think freak some people out that might be reading the book while sitting there at the bus station. I hope so. That's the goal. (laughs) Yeah. The goal is that you, I mean, it's like fourth Avenue and the, the, the movie theater, the Keith Albee theaters in the novel. And like, um, they go, there's a, the, a movie, the 10 commandments is on the marquee there, <laughs> which was out at that time. And, um, they go to a restaurant and he goes to, but they, it walks at Marshall universities in the novel, you know, the, which is in Huntington. And so it, it, it's, it's, um, very much real in those, in, in those terms and the people too, are um the attitudes of the people um and 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 it's especially attitudes of people in the 50s you know those are as true to life as i could make it excellent um i i I love that for the for the story because i feel like it really adds flavor to to a story like that when you can pull somebody away from maybe the automatic context that they build in their head for something based on their location, their world, when you set it in a place that has a really kind of firm identity and you really integrate that into the story, I feel like it makes the story so much better. I think, I think it's going to appeal to people. If you, if you know anything about the Rust Belt and the cities in the Rust Belt and the manufacturing and the Mm -hmm. prosperity that was and how that's gone away and it's an economically depressed area. uh, And that had already began in the 1950s. Um, it was starting to diminish. And so I think if you recognize any of those cities from New Jersey out to the the Midwest, you know, in this Rust Belt, that's that's probably I, I hope that's what's in your mind, you know, as, as you're reading about Huntington, because that's the type of town that I'm talking about. Love it. Um, now, this this book is definitely more of a thriller. It is. Um, yeah. Than a lot of the other books that you've written. Am I correct? Right. Right. Those are horror novels. This one's right. a crime crime novel. Yeah. Right. So when you, you know, writing in a in another genre, which by the way, I, I do as well, even in the fiction side, I've got got my hands in some other places that I'm I'm not li- necessarily at liberty to talk about just yet, but I understand what it's like to move between very clearly drawn but right. very loosely held genres. And I say that because mm. horror is so big and thrillers are so big, but there's a very clean line between a thriller that has a heavy horror focus and one that does not Um, moving from writing predominantly horror to moving toward a a more pure kind of pulp thriller kind of story. What did that feel like for you? Did you feel like it changed the way you told the story? Did it change character development? Did it just change plot? Like what was that like? 
you know, I, it's something I've always I've always read in a lot of genres. And so I'm very familiar with the way horror stories are structured and mysteries are structured and thrillers. And um, I love reading science fiction and I, I love reading all these genres. And so my approach to it just felt instinctive when I was going into it that I'm going to tell a crime story. And I let that guide me just based on my reading of crime stories. So it wasn't like it was never a conscious thing that I can't do the things I do. I'll tell you one way. It's a it's one way. It's very different. You don't want. I didn't want to describe if you if you have a fight scene, right, or a, a murder scene. Um, you want to build up the, in the crime, not in the horror novel. You want it to be in modern sense style graphic, you know, and you show the right. blood and you, the you, the penetration of the knife, and you describe those things. Um, and in the crime novels, a little less of that. So the, the the impact of it. There's a one. There's one very graphic scene in Seance um, where a man is beaten with a. It's a sock full of broken glass. Oh, nice. And it's obviously you know it's picking at his face as it's hit and kind of stripping flesh from his face as it's hitting. And I did think in that term, when I first wrote it, it was very great. It was a horror novel style, like it's stri- <laughs> stripping flesh off the guy's head, you know, as he's like uh, beating him with this glass sock. And uh, I did going back, you know, go back and forth with editors on that. I said this was. I was. I was told this is stomach churning. You need to cut the <laughs> turn the turn down the level. Uh, you know of graphic violence here. And I, that that was the one time I thought I kind of <laughs> the two worlds collide. And I thought, oh well, maybe you got to think in terms of audience and audience expectations. And somebody reading a crime novel may not want the uh, ribbons of flesh on the sock. You know. <laughs> <laughs> like the the horror reader wants that the crime the crime reader maybe not so much so that did make me rethink there's a, uh, there's a lot of graphic violence in seance um but you kind of pull back on the descriptions of the outcome you right. know the graphic violence a bit that's a great that's a great uh that's a great uh uh differentiator uh and i'm and i'm glad to see that uh, you you didn't like quit in protest, right? <laughs> like you. <laughs> well, I, I you know I try I I I like working with editors. Like yeah, I I I never really. I mean, I'm a human being, and you like when somebody says something negative about it, I wither inside, <laughs> just like anybody else, you know. Like when they're kind of critiquing your work, but I do value somebody saying this doesn't work. Or you need to restructure. This doesn't make sense. It's the way it's in your head is not the way it is on paper. And um, I really value that. And so that was a different perspective and saying stomach churning. That's not what necessarily people want. No, I I never thought of, you know, it didn't make me mad. It kind of made me, um, I tried to see it from their point of view. It's usually, uh, it's usually the right one. Um, you know, when you're talking to the right editor, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. If, if if they're good at what they do, you know, you should listen to them. They're they're yeah. they're only trying to help you improve the story, and and they think about audience in a different way than you might, you know. That's right. So, you you have to handle the suspenseful elements of a book differently when yeah. you don't have the promise or thread of ribbons, you know, being torn from someone's face. Like when you, did you feel like handling the twists in the plot or the turns or even uh, like, like hooking readers at the end of a chapter or any of that? Did you feel like the, the way you built suspense in this story as a pure or, or more pure thriller uh, than obviously than a horror. Did you feel like there was a big difference in the handling of, of that in the, in the, in the writing of the book? You know, I, I I'll, I'll admit when I write horror novels, I try, I structure them like mystery novels. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I kind of came in with that framework. I do like that framework of, of a mystery at the heart of things and solving it. Mm-hmm. I did try in the crime novel. The whole goal was the action of the story begins on page two on page two and it doesn't stop to the climax it builds 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 until the end of the story so i did want that i I did consciously do that in this because i wanted this to kind of be a kind of build up get you kind of pulled into the story you're figuring out things as royce figures them out 
that's the mystery element. He's kind of feeling his way through the fog and you're, you're there with him and finding things out as he finds things out. There's no omnipotent narrator who knows everything. Royce tells the story. And so you figure it out along with him. And the, um, that, that was one conscious thing I did for building kind of ratcheting up suspense as, as, as you go through that. Um, especially in, in this novel, when he, there's a, a lot of it's, you know, he's going to figure out people who aren't on his side, but still have to interact with them. And so that, that's always a good, good uh, use of suspense there. You know, when he knows the reader knows the other person in the story doesn't know, you know, and so right. I, I, I really use that to, to full effect. Now, forgive me if you've already mentioned this and I just have a little tiny brain and I can't fit all the things in it. Um, Royce Pembroke, this is first, this is, is this his first showing in one of your stories? Well, he's, he was in a, so I, I as you can tell, I like uh, building kind of series around characters. Mm-hmm. So Doran, Doran Toth's going to have a series. Elijah Valero and the Hangman Feeds the Jackal has short stories. He's going to have more novels. And Royce Pembroke is too. So Royce Pembroke, the first short story, I have a short, I had a short story published in Guilty Crime Story Magazine. And it's called Tibet Has a Book of the Dead too. Tibet has a book of the dead too. And uh, it was the first Royce Pembroke story. And it, it's back in the forties when he's like uh, ripping people off on the carnival circuit. So when you wrote him then, did you know there was going to be something for him later, I, like a, a full novel or did it? Just I did. Out? I wrote the first, I, I wrote the first two novels. There's another, I'm on next year. Next year, there's going to be another Royce Pembroke novel called the switchblade Svengali that comes out <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> um i love that but uh the switchblade Bengali is uh his second novel so and i have a third novel planned for him and i want to write more short stories about i like him as a character and i think something that's interesting about royce too that i that i interested in the the drama of it in the 50s is that he's an openly gay man in the 1950s and being an openly gay man in small town america in the 1950s um was uh, really set up a lot of interesting character stuff for me with his interactions with people. Was he the first openly gay character that you've written? I mean, you may have written other gay characters, but were they openly gay or? No, this, this, uh, in the, my, my first published novel that I actually has, but um, yeah, so this would be my first novel that has an openly gay protagonist. In hmm. it. Did you feel, did you feel motivated to do that? Um, for any other reason than when you started to write him, it was, you know, he just felt like that was, that was the right character or was there? Yeah, that's who, that's, that's who he was. That It, it came to me that, you know, that, that's, that's who Royce was and um, it, it, it developed organically. Excellent. Um, yeah. I love that. And, and, and I, I mean, that, that can add a whole, I mean, especially in the 50s, that can add a whole layer to that story that would not exist had he not been. Right. Well, that's the, and that's the contrast in the this next book, The Switchblade Spengali. He goes out to Phoenix. It's set in Phoenix hmm. in 1968. All right. And he, um, it's a very different world in 1968 Phoenix than it is in, in 1956 Huntington and Cincinnati. And so that uh, that contrast was interesting too about attitudes beginning to change and attitudes in Phoenix are different than kind of this river town, you know, Ohio river towns. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's that's really cool. Um, are you? I mean, you've got you've got a busy twenty twenty four coming up. My brain is is yeah. stacking your dates. <laughs> it's like. Well, I have yes. Yeah, so for next year, I have Death of the Kingdom. Yep. The Switchblade Svengali, and I have a my first science fiction novel coming out, and it's called yeah. uh, Colossus with a Poison Tongue, and uh, it's it's going to be out next year too. So, I've got to ask because like like you and I were just talking about a few minutes ago. You know, I I, I dabble in a in another uh, genre, um, but it, I've had more people warn me about crossing genre lines than I can count and i always laugh about that i'm like it'll be okay i can understand you know you don't want to confuse readers i think it's just about being transparent about what the story is um i 
I, I I've received that same advice, and yeah. I I imagine it's correct. Right. <laughs> I imagine they're they know what they're talking about. But that's not what I'm passionate about. I want to tell right. stories in different genres. My main genre is horror stories. I'll always go yeah. back to those horror novels. But I like to write other novels. I've written a Western now and a crime novel. Mm-hmm. And I'm writing a science fiction novel. And if I like to read it, I want to write it. And I'm going to do that. It's, is, uh, you know, it may, it, there's a difference between what's best for your career and what's best for you. And I think, uh, in, in that sense, that's just best for me. You know, that's something that I enjoy doing. And I have to, when you're talking about a novel, a novel is such a marathon. You have to be passionate about it. Oh, yeah. And if I feel like I'm doing something and repeating myself, the passion's not there. Yeah. Um, that's one of the reasons I asked. There's two sides to it. There's the pros and the cons, right? And it, only looking at it through that lens, but th- some of the pros are that, you know, you're, you're meeting new readers, you're, you're expanding your reach, you're expanding your own artistic, um, experience. You're doing all the things that you really enjoy. Some of the cons that people are always worried about are like, you mess with the algorithms, you know, I'm trying to sell you these types of books and you're writing mm-hmm. these and, it gets things crossed, but then you go, yeah, it's okay. Like, I'll, <laughs> how many people are finding me purely through the algorithm, right? It's like. Right, yeah. And, I'm, you know, I, I think it would be different if, if a book really took off. If right. you had a book that really took off and you became known for that genre and you wanted to keep um, milking that success, that's different. You know, right. but I mean, as an indie author and you're trying to find trying to find an audience, which is very difficult just to be seen. I think that's the most difficult thing for indie authors just to be seen because you're you drown in the 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 masses of people who are also yeah. writing and publishing. And so, why not throw out things and see what sticks? Yeah, you know, you know, and yeah. that's 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 my thoughts on it. The the science fiction novel I'm doing is has an occult element to it. So there is some horror elements to it, you know. So I mean, it does kind of. I can always tie it back into that sure. when I when I'm when I'm pushing it. But it's right. uh, it's uh, different though. It's different than anything I've ever done. And I, I wrote it this summer, and I loved doing it. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so as we kind of wrap up here, speaking of being seen, where can people see you? <laughs> yeah. So I have a, a the website that you mentioned, koihall.com. And um, for the small press, if you're interested in historical horror anthologies and the, that I'm going to be editing, I do open calls for those. You can find those at scythianwolf.com and S-C-Y-T-H-I-A-N, scythianwolf.com. And all the open calls will be there. I try to do those through Horror Tree and websites like that, too. They also promote those. You'll find those open calls there. But uh, other than that, on Goodreads, I'm active on Goodreads and on Twitter at Koi Hall Books and Instagram at Koi Hall Books. I try to keep the name the same and the picture the same. <laughs> so if you just type in the name and find that black and white picture of me, that's uh, you'll find me on most social media places, including Blue Sky and Facebook and all of them. If you guys haven't uh, connected with uh, Koi on uh, any of those socials, I highly encourage you to. That's how we met uh, very supportive, very, very kind, uh, very nice person to be connected with. There's no crazy. Uh, he hasn't, <laughs> he hasn't you, been man. flooding my DMs with fi- foot pics or anything. It's right. Yeah. I'm a little disappointed, N- but whatever. Nor, nor, nor begging you to read my book. <laughs> yeah. I don't know which one I would rather receive. Now, but, um, <laughs> but, but yeah. both, uh, both of them get old fast. <laughs> Yeah. Now, uh, very, 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 very nice uh, to to finally have you on the show. And I can't wait to get you back uh, very soon. Um, Guys, if you haven't ran, like I already gave you the heads up about the book, you got to get out there and pick up a seance for Wicked King Death. Go do that right now. Um, And if if you can't, you need to pre-order it. Like, because we're going to, they're going to release this episode the same week as the book launch. And, uh, it's really, it's, it sounds like such a fun story and I'll just put one little plug for people out there that may not be like, they may not read much noir crime thriller type work. 
Um, I love a good palate cleanser as a horror reader. I read tons of horror. I also read tons of other things. And oftentimes I use nonfiction as a palate cleanser. But I love just reading good crime fiction, a good thriller, like just seeing and digesting something a little different. It doesn't have to be drastically different. I mean, it's just, it's it's like a breath of fresh air sometimes. And that doesn't mean that there's been anything wrong with what I've been reading. Uh, they, they could be, the, I could just read a fantastic story, but I think it's one of the reasons why someone like Stephen King has so much success is his books are palate cleansers for the next books oftentimes in his, right. in his yeah. own catalog. So, you know, if you guys are looking for something a little, a little, um, a little different, definitely uh, not going to find a book uh, or a story along those same lines anywhere else. Check out Coy's book, A Seance for Wicked King Death. All right, Mr. Coy, thank you so much for joining me all the way from West Virginia, sir. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. And guys, make sure you guys are subscribing, all the things. I don't want to sound like uh, some some YouTube <laughs> talking puppet, but go ahead and subscribe to the show. Come on back. We'll see you guys in the next episode. Thank you so much.